I look at my, I got AIM 120s on my wingtips. I've got AIM 9s. And I'm in a freaking F-16. Like, this is awesome. Everyone, it's Antina Del Rosa and Jack Hawkins with another episode of the Players Hall Podcast. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Colonel Doug Wickert. Colonel Wickert is the department head for the Department of Aeronautics here at the United States Air Force Academy. As you'll see, Colonel Wickert is so inspirational, truly knowledgeable, and his enthusiasm is contagious. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did. Well, good afternoon, sir. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, we're very honored to have you on the show. Well, so, actually, that's a mutual feeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, could to get the get the ball rolling, could you just tell us a little about yourself, uh, your career, how you got to where you are today at the academy? So, uh, I'm a 1995 grad uh, from the academy. Uh, was a double major here and uh, went to uh, grad school right after graduation. Uh, two years at MIT and then to pilot training. Uh, pilot training, uh, you know, that's you know standard year and then a year of F-16 training after that. You're in a pipeline, you're, you know, grade sheet after grade sheet after grade sheet, continuously getting assessed and evaluated. Um, but finally, there comes a day when there's a last grade sheet uh, and you're at your operational unit uh, and, uh, and life is good. But that, you know, that's a long time. Uh, so I flew F-16s uh, at Hill Air Force Base as my first operational assignment. Uh, did a couple deployments with that. Uh, then Osan Air Base, Korea. Uh, got picked up for the test pod school, uh, which had been a, a dream ever since I was old enough to know what the test pod school was. Um, and so incredibly excited about that. Uh, I was actually the token Air Force guy that went to Pax River, the Naval Test Pod School. Navy always sends one guy to Air Force. Air Force sends one <laughs> guy to Navy. And I was that dude uh, that year. Uh, so after, uh, after a year at Pax River, uh, did some flight tests for a couple of years and then PhD program as part of a TPS faculty uh, program, uh, did a DARPA fellowship, uh, after my PhD during the course of that DARPA fellowship, ran into some folks that were starting a program and were say, and they said, Hey, uh, you've got kind of the background, the, you're the kind of guy that we want on the program. And I, I've got this job out at the test pod school, you know, I'm going to be on the faculty. Like, well, that's okay. The four star said we could have whoever we want and we want you. Um, so shortly after that, I got a new set of orders. Uh, and probably the highlight of my career was um, uh, working on an X-plane. Uh, so I went to a program office uh, where we built and designed an X-plane. Um, so I was out at the uh, out at the out at the engineer, you know, manufacturers uh, at the plant three weeks out of the month, going through the engineering design meetings, building the airplane came time where the airplane is built. Uh, you know, we kind of set a record we built in two years. Wow. Um, uh, from blank sheet of paper uh, to actually have an airplane. Uh, I had come out on the Scranton Commander list right when the airplane was done. So again, right time, right place. Got to stand up a brand new squadron, take that X-plane through first flight envelope expansion. Uh, just, I mean, the dream of a test pilot, the dream of an engineer. Uh, just, I mean, right place, right time. Um, so I did that um, for my squadron command. Then, of course, you got senior developmental education mm -hmm. and then back to ops group command uh, in flight test uh, and then to the Pentagon. Um, and then fortunately, I got a very short, you know, my, my advice about the Pentagon is always hit hit the beltway with escape velocity <laughs> so that you don't get sucked into the black hole in orbit and end up there for a long time. <laughs> but um, 
got selected as a permanent professor uh, while I was on staff at Air Force T&E, uh, and so came here. It was a long time to get back here, um, but after 25 years, here I am. And are you glad to be back, sir? I am absolutely glad to be back. Uh, th this is a special institution. Uh, it's a it's a place that if it didn't exist, I mean, if there wasn't such a thing as an Air Force, um, we should create an institution like this that takes people from all across the country, develops them academically, develops their leadership, develops their their character, because we need society needs that. You know, so if it didn't exist, society should create something like this because we need the graduates uh, to, to make the world what it is. Sir, I want to back up a little bit to what you said about the X-Plane. Could you talk a little <laughs> bit about that? I just think that's super cool. Like, it's a little off topic, but I, I kind of want to know if you uh, can talk about it. There, I can say very little specifically okay. about it. Uh, I do have a place picked out in the Air Force Museum where I think it would hang very nicely <laughs> um, in 30 years, maybe, when it's declassified. Um I still won't be allowed to talk about it. I signed a piece of paper saying that I wouldn't talk about it for 99 years. Um, but it was a, uh, I, what I can say, you know, so it, it isn't, you know, there are things in my OPR which are unclassified. Um, so, you know, it was a, 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 a sixth gen technology demonstrator. Wow. Um, so we were, we were developing sixth gen technologies. And did you get to fly that? I did. Oh, yep. In fact, uh, you, on the podcast, you can't see, but that's me, uh, that picture right there. Uh, climbing off the airplane uh, after my first flight. Oh man! Wow! And you got to lead a whole squadron full of yes, is that correct? Yep. Wow. It's incredible. Um, so, sir, obviously you're being very humble with us, and if you wouldn't mind, if I could list some of your accomplishments or your accolades for the people who are listening, um, you graduated number one in your class, your Air Force Academy class in '95, uh, distinguished graduate at Navy Test Pilot School. Um, Obviously, as you mentioned, F-16 fighter training, uh, and uh, you attended the Eisenhower School. Um, so I guess my question with relation to our topic is, have you ever felt um, the pressure to stay number one uh, or felt pressure to break the character um, in order to stay number one? that makes sense that that is such a uh, that is such a great question um and it, it, and the easy answer is is not really because you know being number one was never and it's and it's easy to i mean this is going to sound i hope it doesn't sound like self-righteous you know it's it's easy for you know say bill gates to say that money can't buy you happiness well sure it's easy for you to say you got all the money in the world um but he, there, there are so many ways to measure success in life and what your order of merit was in a program is, is probably one of the least important ones. Mm -hmm. You know, if I were to, to, to walk into Starbucks and say, Hey, so I was distinguished graduate from such and such, <laughs> uh, with that and five bucks, I could buy a cup of coffee. Uh, so, you know, those, that was never the goal. You know, what, what, what was the goal? You know, what, what drives me is just to be as good as I can personally be. Um, and, and just to never give up, um, you know, trying to, to, you know, self-improve. Um, and it just worked out in, and the things that you list, I mean, it's, it actually, it's, it's measuring the same thing. It's like, you know, if, if somebody was tall, and you measured them with a meter stick and then you measure them with a yardstick and then you measured them with the, you know, stacks of paper. And you're like, wow, look at this. You know, you 
I mean, all those things are just school. Mm-hmm. It just turns out that I, I'm good at school. Uh, that's all that means. Um, and so, uh, it, I mean, no, the, the simple answer is, um, you know, it, our, our character is, is really fundamental to, to what we are. Mm-hmm. The, um, you know, so I came in the Air Force at the exact same time that the core values were born. Uh, and, and we have, if you look at the changes during my Air Force career, you know, we've gone through, you know, at that point in time, we had the stars and bars, and then we went to the, you know, the digital, you know, what we now know as the Air Force logo. Uh, I think we've got, had five uniforms in my, in my time. You know, we went from the stripes on the sleeve back to the rank to the three buttons. Uh-huh. Um, of course, we went from BDUs to ABUs, and now we're in OCPs, and of course, flight suit. We've gone to two services. You know, so, you know, we have changed so many things. The core values have not changed in those 25 years. And to me, that means that we probably got those right. Mm-hmm. And the really, I mean, the really interesting full circle thing about that and, the, you know, the fact that this institution reinforces character is that the core values came from the Air Force Academy. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, before, you know, so Fogelman uh, is the one that instituted, he was the chief of staff. Uh, and the Air Force adopted the core values, integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do, in May of 1995. And of course, May of 1995, 31 May 1995 was when I threw my hat in the air down at the stadium. Let's go. Uh, yeah, Nino, you're ready. I know. I'm so ready. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, so I, you know, I, 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 but they weren't new, you know, because we had been talking about exactly those core values at the Air Force Academy under General Hosmer, who's the superintendent at the time. Um, and before that, the Air Force, I think there were six under McPeak um, and General Fogelman, uh, the chief of staff, you know, said, hey, you know what the Academy's got going there with the, those three core values? They're simple. Um, and, and, and they're just when you get down to them and you, and you actually examine them, integrity first, um, you know, that really is the fun. You know, our our profession is, you know, the profession of war and the profession of arms. Uh, is one that has to inherently built be built on trust, mm-hmm. um, and so you know in, that integrity first is just it's fundamental to building trust. And everything else we talk about, you know, when we talk about human respect and dignity, and and all, all of that stems from being able to trust each other. Um, and so that was a very long-winded response. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I. I th- Sir, I think you're spot on. Um, and like like you said, and I think the trust is the foundation for success in an organization, especially the Air Force. And if I may, um, quote, I just finished the book, The Millionaire Next Door by mm-hmm. um, Dr. Stanley. Yep. Um, and one of the quotes that he that I really liked from the book is that um, it's not the merit of the businessman that makes the business a success. It's the uh, or the intellect of the businessman that makes the business a success. It's the, the, uh, and now I'm forgetting the quote. Um, it's the character of the businessman yes. that makes the business successful. Yep. Um, so I think you're spot on yep. that we really do need that to emphasize that character as we do here. Yep. Yo-Yo Ma just, I, I heard him last week say something very similar. So, you know, world famous cellist. Uh, he said he wants to be remembered for his character and not for his talent. Wow. Um, and again, easy for Yo-Yo Ma to say that because like, yeah, you're famous because you're very talented. But, right. you know, I think, it, again, it cuts you know to the heart of the thing is that when we look at what is a successful life, you know, when we want to reflect back on our life um, and say, yeah, you know, I, I did the right thing. Um, 
you know, it's it's not going to be, well, look, look at all the games that I won or look at what I did here or look how much money I had. You know, if if you achieve that through uh, through, you know, nefarious means, right. um, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, I agree with that, sir. And uh, I liked what you said about the like the measuring stick. And it's just school. I really like that, that analogy. And I wanted to know, because everybody here is we're building character like one one day at a time. Everybody gets a little bit better every day. Uh, so what would you say the most character building moment to your career was that you thought, wow, I really grew or I was really challenged? So there, there's lots of different ways to, to, to look at that. Uh, I would say probably the experience that you know, where I currently am in my life. And I don't think we're ever done. We're never done developing. We're continuously changing. Um, you know, I, I look at back to who I was in high school. And I'm like, and I, I don't think I'd want to be that person. For, you know, it's just this like, oh. <laughs> but that's, you know, you're not done developing yet. Um, and, and so, you know, we're continuously, we're always getting better. You know, every single day is an opportunity to, to be better than we were on the day before. Um, I'd say where I am right now in life, uh, the thing that has most shaped, um, you know, kind of my perspective and the way that I see things uh, was, you know, I, I, I've always enjoyed understanding things and acquiring knowledge. You know, maybe that's the reason I, I like school or do well in school is because I just like learning. Uh, and so I always thought someday I'm going to know it all, you know, just, you know, uh, the, the <laughs> I used to joke as a cadet, you know, because like, why do I have to take all these other classes? You know, I just want to take. Um, the academy's going to make me so well-rounded that I'm pointless. Um, that was what I used to say. As a it turns out all those other classes were really, really important. Uh, I just didn't re recognize that at the time. Right. But I thought when I go to grad school and I'm at MIT, and I get to focus on just the engineering, then I'm going to know everything I need to know. And so I finished two years in MIT. I'm like, ah, there's still a lot I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a PhD. Uh, so it's a decade before I actually get into a PhD program. And I start the PhD program and I'm like, all right, this, when I finish this, I'm going to know, I'm going to be the expert. I'm going to know everything. And it was probably about halfway through that, uh, where it occurred to me that we'll never know it all. Uh, that's part of what makes life fascinating and fun. Cause every day there's something new, right. but you know, there's actually things that we can't know. You know, there are, there are limits to human knowledge. Uh, there are actually things, you know, physics tells us this. You know, if you go to quantum physics, you can't simultaneously know the the position and and momentum of, of a particle. You know, it's, it's impossible. Uh, it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So there are limits to what human knowledge. And once you kind of realize that, it, it, it builds in a humility. And, and the fact that, you know, and it was actually a really good time because uh, when you go operational, uh, you don't command until much later in your career. So, you know, a maintenance officer is going to be commanding as a, as a lieutenant, uh, as a captain, they might have 50 maintainers that are, that are working for them. You know, a CE, you know, same way. Um, as a pilot, it's really not until you're um, maybe an ADO, definitely a squadron commander. So, you know, now you're at the 15 year point, lieutenant colonel, mm -hmm. um, before you're really in leadership. So I, I think it was very fortunate for me to, to have that humbling experience of realizing that you can't know it all um, because that's a much better perspective for a leader to come into an organization, uh, to, to approach it with that, 
that humility and that openness that I don't know the answers. I can't have the answers to certain things. And then to be open to all those outside perspectives. So, so were you just like sitting down studying for your aero stuff and PhD school and like, wow, I'm never going to know it all. Yeah, it was, you know, That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was probably one night where I'm, I'm struggling to kind of understand the turbulence and the average Stokes equations. And I'm like, you know what? Actually, what this equation says is that you can't know. <laughs> you're you're free. You're sure. liberated. Wow. That's a liberating experience. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, so kind of moving on to the the next topic and something I've been kind of interested in. I want to fly, and mm -hmm. you're a pilot. So, in pilot training in particular, what was the balance between teamwork and collaboration and academic integrity? And how, if at all, was that different than what the academy taught you while you were here? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, all these are superb questions. Uh, I, I remember as a, as a cadet, as we were having, you know, kind of conversations about the honor code and everything, um, and, and, and people would bring up the POW scenario and the Hanoi Hilton and stuff and, you know, well, would you trust, you know, would you rather, you know, lie about something to protect your fellow POW, which is really kind of a, it's a false metaphor and a false analogy. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, you, you know, your, your question about pal trading, it, it's so on the money because you actually see very different cultures between different classes in pilot training. And whatever kind of initial, you know, it's kind of like how, uh, you know, a, a different crystal uh, as a seed can, can see different crystal shapes um, as they, as they precipitate out of solution, the same type of, I don't know if that is that what happens to different classes, how they adopt different cultures. Uh, so, uh, I was, uh, I was actually in pilot training with a lot of 97 grads, uh, you know, two years younger. So I was, as a first Lieutenant, I was the senior, uh, senior ranking officer, the SRO. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else was the butter bar and I had blue bars. Um, and, uh, and so we were, we were about three quarters academy grads, a couple of ROTC grads. So it was um, a lot more, I think, of the culture of the academy in our class. Um, and so as the SRO, uh, and there's in pilot training, there's you got tests every week, right? You got the stand eval test, you got this test, you got the knowledge test. And um, and I remember um, there was a point in time where uh, somebody from a class ahead of us uh, came to me as the SRO for, for 98.12 and said, hey, and he had this packet. He's like, here's all the tests, um, all the weekly knowledge tests. And I'm like, okay, thank you, I guess. Um, I'm like, wow, all right. Um, like, this is kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, do all the classes do this? So, you know, we went back, um, got the class, you know, together there in the, uh, uh, over at my house uh, that evening. Um, and said, hey guys, uh, here's here's the deal. Um, we've got this. I don't think we should we should use these. Um, I don't know if other classes are or not. You know, clearly it, it maybe it's accepted because you know it was handed down to me. Uh, but you know, let's let's talk about this. And I think you know, so we what we decided as a class is we weren't we weren't going to use wow. the the tests uh, primarily because it wouldn't do us any good when we got to the check right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's they always say, you know, you only cheat yourself when you cheat. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that's, I mean, there's, there's going to come a point in time where, you know, you're flying an instrument approach in the weather at night 
down to mins and you can't cheat that. You can't cheat terra firma. You know, if you hit it going 150 knots on approach off glide path, you're dead. And, you know, the check ride is a lot lower consequences. I mean, you could hook the check ride and then you're, you're not flying the airplane. You want to fly. I, I was about to pick on an airplane, but I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, but you know, you're, you're only hurting yourself. And so as a class, we decided, nope, we're going to set those aside and we're just going to study every week and, and we won't get a hundred percent. Um, you know, we'll miss a couple questions, but we are now going to be ready when we go in for the GK, the general knowledge part of the check, right? Uh, and so that was something that we decided as a class. And I don't know, I, I, I want to think that maybe it was because we were three quarters academy grads. Um, and the class that, you know, the class leader that gave me the thing, they were primarily, you know, they were, a, they were a mix of other things. They didn't have a predominant academy grad. There were other commissioning sources. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that made the difference. I don't know. Uh, but I definitely think that was the right decision. And, and I think it also made us tighter you know, when we talked about trust before, kind of being the foundation of any organization, we were a very, very tight class because I think that was obvious. I mean, we knew that nobody else was, you know, we knew we were all on the same even keel right. and there was no temptation there. And it was very, we were very open and candid with each other. Um, you know, the, to your part about the teamwork at pilot training, you know, there's different IPs have different things and you're like, hey, if you mess up this thing with this IP. And so, you know, that's that's completely fair game to, to share that knowledge uh, instead of playing. I have a secret. Um, I'm going to let everybody screw this up so I get a higher grade. Uh, we didn't have any of that. Um, so it was, you know, that was a much better experience. And as a result of it, we actually did a lot better as a class than most classes. So if we look at, uh, you know, after we track selected, you know, I've only really kept track of uh, the eight guys that were um, in uh in my pilot training. So, uh, four, actually five of the eight, um, are either currently wing commanders, wow. um, or, or previous wing commanders. Uh, two of them just came out of the brigadier general list. Uh, four of them went to weapons school. One of them went to test pilot school. Wow. Um, so as a class, we did really, really well. Um, and I think maybe all of that went back to the part that we got off to a great start because we had that foundation of trust. Mm -hmm. So when you made that decision as a group, was there any, did you feel any resentment from your other classmates in pilot training or was it, I mean, I know it was collective, but. You mean like from another class, like, Hey, so what makes 9812 so righteous? <laughs> no, just from, um, because I know you were the senior ranking officer and you'd kind of approached them with the you know idea that you didn't want to use the um, the knowledge that was given to you. So did any of them feel any sort of, did you feel any resentment from them? Like, Hey, I kind of want to use this to help me get a better grade. You know, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, and, and again, I think it was, you know, maybe just the, the approach that, that we used and, mm -hmm. um, or maybe it was just that, that cohort of people. Um, but, um, no, I, it was, it, there wasn't a lot of debate. Um, because, you know, it doesn't really help. And then, you know, when you, when we look at what happened at Malmstrom, um, here a couple years ago, and I actually, so I run on the air force running team still. And, and one of the, um, one of the lieutenants that got, you know, caught up in that was on the running team. Um, 
And so, you know, I heard the story from him before it, you know, kind of made the, and, and that happened at a very unfortunate time as there were a couple other nuclear incidents going on. So um, I, the thing that, again, so this is very, very, very candid. Uh, I have no inner monologue. Um, hmm. the, the thing that, and again, I don't know all the details, but uh, there was not a lot of uh, accountability at the leadership level. Um, so I don't, and again, I don't know anything about the unit, uh, but I don't know if that was a culture that was accepted, you know, up to the squadron command level that, Hey, we're, you know, these are just the stand about, these are just the stand about tests. They don't count for anything, mm-hmm. you know, everybody, you know, our, you know, we want to look good. So everybody max it, uh, type of thing. And if that was an organizational thing, or if we ended up making, I don't want to say scapegoats, but you know, we, the, the folks we picked on were the were tended to be the ones at the lower rank. And to my knowledge, uh, there was no accountability at the, at the leadership level. Uh, and again, without knowing anything, it's hard to really judge. And so I'm not going to judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do think that um, we need to own, you know, when you're a leader, you need to own the organizational culture and you need to be responsible for that. No, absolutely, sir. And that's, that was kind of the, the root of my question. Um, because I think it, you not feeling any resentment from your other classmates on your decision to not use the test that was given to you, I think. And then um, obviously all of your class and yourself being so successful later in life, I think that speaks volumes to um, what, you know, what making the right decision mm-hmm. uh, really can do. So that's that was the reason that I asked. So kind of off that, sir, yes. just to throw a scenario <laughs> at you. So if you're not the SRO and your, your, your SRO does get those tests and everybody else is using those tests. How do you, how would you address that culture at, at pilot training <laughs> yeah. specifically? Excellent question. And, and again, the SRO, I'm a lieutenant, you, right, know, right. you know, we don't, I, I didn't make second lieutenant salute me, you know, <laughs> the, uh, so, you know, that, so that, and that's a situation that our grads are going to find themselves in. They're going to walk into organizations that, are cutting corners somewhere um and so what do you do i mean ultimately i think you have to step back and and take the big picture um and and say what is you know so so here's a good example so when i was the ops group commander um we uh we were operating at a a a semi-deployed location where you know we had hooches and um and so you were typically there for very, very long hours. And we had these uh, early morning missions and late night missions and stuff. So, you know, by the reg, you're supposed to have 12 hours of crew rest, you know, so you can't do any work. Well, you're, de- you're deployed, you're at work, you know, what else are you going to do? Um, and 12 hours is a little, is a little excessive, um, is, is more than is needed when instead of a half an hour commute, at home and then you got to deal with the kids and the dog and make dinner and clean up from dinner and then listen to your wife talk about her or your spouse talk about the day uh and you get up in the morning make breakfast and commute and now you're at the squadron for the you know none of that is at this organization so as the commander i said you know what we are putting our folks you know because because it was it was it was clear to me that not everybody was flying with 12 hours of crew rest you know they were getting work Mm -hmm. done you know 10 hours before you know nine hours before because because there's a lot of work to do I said, you know what, let's change the rules. Rather than have people break the rules, let's change the rules that aren't really applicable. 
So we wrote an exception to policy for our unit, given these conditions, given the proximity to the hooches, given the opportunity for eight hours of uninterrupted rest, which I mean, an eight hour night of sleep, <laughs> that's gold. That's a lot more than I normally get. Um, so I'll have, I'll be better crew rested if I work, you know, up until nine hours before my flight, go back to my hooch, read a little bit, fall asleep and get a solid eight hours of sleep. I'll be in a lot better shape. Um, so we changed the rules. Uh, so, you know, there's, I think sometimes we can look at these kind of honor dilemmas as, as like, well, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. Can we say damned on the podcast? Sure. All right. Okay. <laughs> I just did. No. <laughs> you can edit it out. No, <laughs> um, but, but, but let's step back and see if we can change the game. You know, so, so why are we cutting corners or why does this organization have a culture that's tolerating something that's not acceptable or that's not consistent with our core values. And if it's because we just have bad apples, well, that's something that leadership needs to take care of because leadership is responsible for the culture. But if it's because they're dumb rules, well, rather than just say, well, dumb rules are meant to be broken, let's let's remove the dumb rules. Let's change the dumb rules. Mm -hmm. um, so. I think taking a taking the big picture is, is the way you get, it. but it's not. I mean, that's hard, and we're gonna, uh, you know, our our grads are gonna be faced with those situations, uh, and that's you know ultimately that's why I love the core values so much because they they help make it simple. Uh, they, it boils it down. Um, there's a uh, I was introduced a couple of years ago to the idea of principle based decision making. You know, and, and I would encourage everybody at some point, in fact, you know, I've got a little book right there that I, I keep them with and, you know, it's my planner. And if I'm sitting around waiting for a meeting to start, you know, I'm flipping through it. I'll, I'll sometimes I'll review my principles and I'm like, oh, you know, what? here's a new one. I'm going to write down. So if you can sit down and articulate what your principle, what what principles are, you know, values are what we value, what we find important. So our core values are what as an Air Force and Space Force we we find what we find worth in our principles are what we live by so some of my principles are you know um time is the only commodity you know time is the fundamental commodity you know and it's in limited supply um you know uh, another that you know you know so another good principle is that uh, the point of of punishment uh, or punishment is important for the good order and discipline of a unit um and that's why you do it and when you can articulate principles. Now decisions become consequential in some cases. And from a leadership perspective, you know, sometimes some of the hardest things to do is to give that punishment because you really like the person. But if you can articulate your principle and say, the reason I'm doing this is because the goal is rehabilitation. And because this is important for the good order and discipline, you know, and, and, and I expect this to rehabilitate you and you can articulate that. Uh, it actually makes it easier to make the decision. It actually makes it easier to receive as well. Um, so I, again, I, I ramble on uh, on tangents, but the um, it, it's not easy, uh, and we will and they will face uh, dilemmas. So I, I think to the point that we can come back to our core values and rest on our principles, um, that will serve all of our grads uh, as they face those difficult uh, dilemmas, and they are going to. They're going to get them. So, sir. Um obviously permanent professor of the aeronautics department. Yep. What is left or what do you see on your radar? What's next in your, in your career? Oh, so <laughs> it's never done. You know, right. that's what makes life exciting is that there's, oh, you know, there, there's always, 
we're never done learning. There's always something more to learn. I've got a stack of books right there on the edge of my desk that there's a bunch of things that I, you know, I, I, I want to learn the, um, you know, in, in flight test, yeah, I was, you know, towards the end of my career, um, was working on different approaches to risk management. I'd love to see that through, you know, trying to bring in some some new risk management principles. Um, you know, that's what keeps life exciting is uh, is something new all the time. Um, you know, there's, I'll tell you one of the things I'd, I'd really like to do is, is achieve that work-life balance. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, that's been a 25 year struggle. And mm-hmm. um, so that's, that's definitely on the radar. I'm going to keep that on the, uh, I'm going to keep that on my, you know, you've got the 10 mile scope, 20 mile scope, 40 mile scope, and I'm going to keep that on single target track on my, right. on my, <laughs> on my ACM scope. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sir, so kind of going off that work life balance. Yes. How, how have you challenged yourself with that so far? How have you attacked that problem of the work life balance? I know like being a pilot and, you know, being married. Yep. What's that? Married, like? three kids, three kids. Yep. A dog. Uh, no dog, no, dog. no, no, that no pets. Nope. Be a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so I, early on, there was a temptation to try to do it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, a couple years ago, uh, the, the air force sent me to, uh, the enterprise leadership seminar. Um, and, and that was actually there were some some very interesting ideas there where you know what it's you, you know kind of if you've read a, if you're a seven habits fan you know one of the habits is actually i don't know if it's one of the habits but it's one of the things that sticks with me is is you got the the bucket and you got the rocks right uh-huh. and you got to put the big rock in the bucket first you know if you fill it up with all the sand you're not going to fit it in there first uh, so you do have to prioritize um and and i and i think where uh, when I've been particularly out of balance with the work-life uh, aspect, uh, it's because I've I haven't taken that prioritization step. You know that that long-term view that you know the, the relationship with my wife. You know, it's not just something you take for granted. Um, you have to prioritize that time. Now there are times where there's surge. Um, you know, when there's deployments or there's something going on, but you can't surge all the time. Mm-hmm. Life is a marathon, and if you try to run it as a sprint, um, you're just you're just going to be tired uh, before it's over. Um, so, you know, and if you're surging all the time, then you don't have any capacity left to surge. And so that's something that I, I actually, um, not my first command, but my second command, uh, that I realized that, you know what, when I was a squadron commander, I was just running ragged. And now I'm looking at my 13 squadron commanders and they're running ragged. So, you know, we actually had an offsite. In fact, uh, again, on the podcast, you can't see it, but, um, we went, yeah. out, went out to Red Rocks and went climbing. So that's all my squadron commanders uh, out at Red Rocks. We took a day off of work. I said, you know what? Nobody is uh, Thursday. Nobody's no, nobody's flying. Nobody's working. Uh, we're going to go out to Red Rocks. We're going to go rock climbing. Um, and so we got to the top of a mountain out there. A beautiful day. Red Rocks uh, Canyon out there outside of Las Vegas, one of the top five climbing destinations in, in the country. Beautiful, beautiful day. Uh, it was November perfect temperature, blue sky, uh, the red rock escarpment. And so we're sitting there and, and, and we're talking and it's like, you know what, there are going to be points in time where we're going to have to ask you to surge for the good of the air force. And if you are surging right now, if you don't have any extra capacity, then you're failing in your mission Mm -hmm. because you need to have that spare capacity. You need to have that margin. 
Uh, and so, you know, I said, well, if I'm going to tell my squadron commanders that, I better do the same thing. Um, so I think it's important at the beginning of the week uh, to sit down, okay, these are the priorities for the week. Uh, and then you kind of iterate that on each day at the beginning of the day. Okay, these are the priorities for the day. Um, and you've got to include the, in those priorities the life part. It's not just the work part. You know, I got to get this OPR done. I got this and this and this. It's like, no, I've, I've got three kids. Um, I need to spend, you know, a certain amount of time. And, and now that they're teenagers and they're, you know, they could, <laughs> it's like, yeah, great dad. Thanks for the quality time. <laughs> I have a teenage sister. So yeah, yeah there you go. You know, but you know, it's important to put, those are the big rocks. Um, and so I, it, I'm, I, I have not solved that yet. Um, that is a work in progress. And that's part of, you know, when you ask me what's next on the radar, it's like getting better at that. You know, every day is an opportunity to be better than we were yesterday. Uh, and we're never as good as we can be. So, sir, are you making all your kids uh, ultra runners too? Is that, is that like a goal? <laughs> uh, so, you know, no, you can't be a prophet in your own land. <laughs> my, uh, so my daughter is a sophomore at MIT. Um, so she, she has gone STEM. But, you know, I've been talking engineering, 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 you know, for as long as she could listen to me. And... Ever since she read this book in the sixth grade, she's wanted to be, do, be a theoretical physicist. And regardless of what, and there's nothing I can say that will change that. Um, so no, there's no hope that they're going to be ultra runners. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe later in life. <laughs> um, well, sir, I don't want to compare your schedule to that of a kid ass because I know uh, we, we don't even measure up, but I'm the actually, you know, so because of what I did as a cadet, I, I remember saying when I graduate, I'm never going to be stressed again. Yeah. You know, it can never be this bad as it is right now. And for the most part, that's true. Well, we got that to look forward to. <laughs> right, yeah. But I think that, the like you said, prioritizing um, big rocks first, I think that's something that we can all take away. Yep. So, so thank you for that. Sir, I like the picture of you in the yearbook. You're like sitting there. <laughs> you're, in your, you're in your room. <laughs> Talk about work-life balance. That's pretty great. <laughs> Fortunately, this is a podcast, so you can't see that. And you can't show it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, sir. We don't want to keep any more of your time. Oh, so. this is great. I, I, I love what you guys are doing. Uh, this is this is so important. Uh, you know, having these conversations, um, you know, the you know, the fact that we have this institution, that we talk about things like honor and character, other, other schools don't do that. Uh, the fact that we do, uh, and we're not, I mean, we're not done. I mean, we don't get it right the first time. Um, and that's, you know, I hated it as a cadet when they said, hey, this is a leadership laboratory. I'm like, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm a lab animal? You know, this, <laughs> I, I hated that phrase. Um, but I now realize what that means is that here's an opportunity to try things. Here's an opportunity. This is a safe space to make mistakes. Uh, and so when I do, you know, mentoring, honor mentoring, you know, for cadets that maybe have stumbled, um, you know, it's like this, the, the important thing is to learn, um, you know, from this. And if you have, then that's even better. We, you know, we learn more from the things that we screw up than we do from the things that we get lucky with. So I, I commend you guys for, for, for having these podcasts because it's a, a very important conversation. And the more that we talk about these things, the more that it reinforces the culture that we want to have. Right. Yes. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you, sir. Sir, could you close us out in like a cool story from either when you were a cadet or when you were flying, you know, F-16s or the X-plane or any other of the planes you flew in Navy Test Pilot School? 
so yes. Uh, so here, here, yes. Um, and I'm so glad he did this for me and I've done it for others. So, you know, through pilot training, y- you know, you're, you're constantly being graded. You're getting great sheets, everybody, you know, so, you know, you're, you're stressed all the time. And, um, and then, and then you're like, okay, once I get my wings, oh, it, it'll be fine. Like, no, because then you got IFF, you got four <laughs> months of being yelled at, you know, pilot training was just about commuting to work. And then you got to make the airplane do something. That's what IFF is about. Uh, so you got all the grade sheets through IFF and then you get to RTU and it's nine months of grade sheets and, you know, being called out for being a couple knots off and for being out of permission and for missing that radio call. And, and so, and you're like, oh, well, once I'm through RTU and I get to my flying unit, then it's like, no, there's more grade sheets because you got to go through mission qualification training. So, you know, all told, that's like two and a half years. And so, and then you're a brand new mission ready wingman. You're through MQT and you have your first non-grade sheet ride in two and a half years. Uh, But you don't want to screw up. So you're still really, really high strung because that's what you've been doing for two and a half years. And so I remember, you know, maybe I'd been a wingman for about a month or so and uh, flying out of hill. So over the Uter, Utah Test and Training Range, Mm -hmm. you know, the Great Salt Flats. Beautiful. Yeah. And you got the Salt Lake and you got the mountains and this is January timeframe. So they're all covered in, in snow and it's a blue sky and we're coming back from a mission and I'm flying on my, my flight leads and my flight commander's wing. Uh, so my flight commander and my flight lead. And, uh, yeah, I forget you know, what our call sign was. Bubba. He's like, Bubba two, two, you know, you're, you're there, right? Sure. <laughs> you're on the radio. <laughs> two. He's like, look out the window, take a deep breath and look out the window. And I'm like, what, what, what's going on? Is there smoke? You know, what am I screwing up? And he's like, no, take a pause. <laughs> this is friggin' awesome. And I'm so glad. I mean, it was the first time I think in flying that I really had the opportunity to no kidding pause and, and say it be in the moment and like, wow. I am in an F-16, got the white salt flats. There's the salt lake. There's the mountains covered in snow. There's the blue sky. The sun's setting over here. So we're starting to pick up the alpine glow on the mountains. Mm-hmm. And I look at my, I got AIM 120s on my wingtips. I've got AIM 9s. And I'm in a freaking F-16. Boy, this is awesome. So... It, it's coming. It's there. That's awesome, <laughs> sir. Well, we got that to look forward to. So thank you again, sir, for being on the podcast. You bet, Jack. Nino, thank you. Thank you, sir.